0: It's maybe not so difficult to get One Sensational Shot.
1: What is it, some kind of local trouble?
2: You are listening to Local Trouble here on the One Sensational Shot Network. A special episode this week. Uh, we've got both James Taylor and and Fletcher Walton, who you normally see on the Evening Glass and Electronic Labyrinth shows. And we're going to be talking about 20 years of The Phantom Menace. We did have very grand plans to do this early in the summer, to actually chime with the anniversary. Initially, we thought we'd do it with the US release, which was in May, and then we missed that. So we thought, it's okay, we'll do it with the UK release, which was in June. We missed that. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) at this point, we're going to do the home video release, which is next April. But we thought, no, we'll get it done. We'll get it done for uh, for, for, for now, so uh, at least we're in the 20-year window.
1: You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the Force. You believe it's this boy? He can see things before they happen.
0: He can help you.
1: The Force is unusually strong with him. He was meant to help you. Anakin! Tell him to take off!
0: Will I ever see you again? What does it heart to tell you? Are you sure about this? Trusting our fate to a boy we hardly know? Anakin Skywalker? Meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense much fear in you. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering.
2: Kick off twenty years of the Phantom Menace. I wanted to ask a question for all of us: Where were you in '99?
1: Ooh, Fletch, you go first. You're our oldest. You might um, you might remember.
0: I'm also the least prepared. '99, um, <laughs> GCSE year, and uh, right. This is what I remember. I remember buying all three copies of Empire magazine with the different covers. Oh, nice. And I re- and I remember calling. My then pal Toby Lee, this is a bloke I haven't seen in 14 years. Maybe 15 by now, actually. I think the last thing we did together was watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place in 2004 when I got back from California. But I remember calling Toby Lee on the landline and uh, I don't even know if he particularly needed this level of detail from me, although he was a <laughs> Star Wars fanatic. But I was going through the review I got and I said, Toby, here, here we go. OK, I'm turning the pages now. It's a five. Oh no! Hold on. Or was it a? F- this is the thing I can't even remember. Or was it a four? What and Empire gave con- Phantom? Yeah. Mm, and the concerning thing is with Empire with uh, Empire magazine. You can always even then. I knew to knock off a what? Knock off a star. Yeah. And if they'd given it four, then that probably, uh, that probably worried me. This but is I, before I'd seen the- it. This is before I'd seen it. Yeah, and yeah. but um, when I went, when I got to the cinema it it wasn't see this is the thing with phantom menace that wasn't the precise point when i realized hold on i like films not just star wars okay yeah. but i'd been i'd been approaching that for a couple of years i know that in 94 and even as late as 96 and 97 star i was star wars first and i also watched goonies and back to the future and knew a little bit about john carpenter and, and indiana jones got, i imagine right oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and um I, that's a really good point because I think by nineteen ninety nine I'd begun to understand that I preferred Indiana Jones and so when when I was finally in the cinema, it still hit me, and I was as excited as I could have been for a film, but it didn't i can't be so romantic as to say that uh, a journey had begun, and then when I saw the the crawl and uh, you know felt the the swell in my chest oh, the journey's over and now I can put that to bed and, and, and uh, put aside childish things. It was more like I'd, I'd reached that point in, in the two years interim. I knew it wasn't terrific. Yeah, OK. While watching it first time, I knew it wasn't terrific. And and nevertheless, all the all the big bits were still big back then. The pod chase was big. Yeah. And d- d- um, the, the jewel of the fates is fantastic. And I, I return to that just a couple of times a year. Just the score? And yeah. I can't... Yeah, well, yeah, both. But oh, you, you yeah. can't knock it. I think it's one thing where you can, um, and again, as a cineast, you can point to that. And I, uh, it's not reasonable to, it's not reasonable to negatively criticise that. It really is a, a top sequence. And I remember as well going in like uh, this is the other thing with Empire magazine. They're they're. Access to the set was unfettered, and now that's been replicated every time a Marvel picture comes out. They have interviews with everybody involved. But Empire had—I'm trying to remember the names now—but it wasn't just Brian Blessed; it wasn't just Armored Best. There was—is it Oliver Ford Davies? Um, yeah.
2: Is he? Is he um, the governor? Is he? Zio yeah. He,
0: he's just. Oh, you must contact yes, me. Yeah. The death toll is catastrophic that guy yeah he's he's some some old bloke empire spoke with him empire spoke with he Robert also Davis. he's
2: also in the first ever episode of young indiana jones uh and, and this is a yes. point i'm going to come to in a minute as yeah. well but yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and um uh greg proops as well they had a short interview with him and some of these people they're saying what role do you play and they say uh, like a commentator i don't know i haven't seen it because i, I turned up and <laughs> There was nothing there, there was no set, you know the thing, so um, yeah. Empire's ent- Empire's anticipation for it was part of what stoked my anticipation, but I was genuinely excited to see, for instance, Natalie Portman, because as I say, I'd become a film fan by then, not just a Star Wars fan, and I'd seen Leon and Beautiful Girls and Mars Attacks, and we've all grown up with her, haven't we? Yes. We have, yeah. About Natalie yeah, she
2: was one of my first crushes for sure. Like yeah, celeb crushes and no, nice. when
0: when we see her in um it was Pablo Loran's Jackie that was fantastic, wasn't it? And you realise, oh yeah, we've known this we've known this girl here ent- in her entire life. She's been with us our entire lives and she was a part of the the biggest uh pop cultural event that we'd ever had as new cinephiles because you know, uh we knew Raiders and we knew Back to the Future, but we weren't there to see it at the cinema day one. And that was the difference with with Phantom Menace, where even more for you, Luke, and you, Taylor, I suppose, because you're four years younger. So yous were were 10, right? 12. 12. Oh, yes. Uh, Very briefly,
2: yeah, I mean, I I was young enough, and I've said this before, actually, on the very first ever episode of Local Trouble. I was young enough to um, just accept it, uh, and I, I was not quite at the point yet where... You know, Star Wars was, was first for me at that point. That was still very much the truth. And and I just wanted to be enveloped in the whole world and the story that there was to tell. I was the guy that was reading the Alan Dean Foster novelization of the first movie, going through line by line that prologue which uh, outlines the fact that there was an emperor who um, was corrupted, you know, and the Republic fell and all of this stuff. I was so into just the... Um, the, the, the macro view of the galaxy, and, and finally to see that play out. I'd been buying Star Wars magazine, the official UK Star Wars magazine, for the preceding two years off the back of the special editions, where they were mm. drip-feeding con- concept art of the Doug Chan concept art of the Jedi Temple. So I was getting really prepped for the world that they were building, and I was getting really prepped for this world of you know high-end political uh, intrigue. Uh, rather than necessarily just seeing the original Star Wars movie again, like having that a, a revamp of that, you know um, so I was getting really prepped for the whole thing on that level, <clears throat> and for me, I just was excited to see how it all played out and um i I was at fever pitch to the point where I was pissing my parents off. My parents were really <laughs> worried about me um, and I remember them taking me aside and trying to talk to me and stuff about how Star Wars isn't everything. Star Wars isn't the entire universe. Uh, and, and my whole life just revolved around it. Like, every facet of my being revolved around Star Wars. Because Lucas was shrewd, as we know. He did the special editions in 97 um, to get it back into the public consciousness. You know, they were theatrical releases. That first um, re-release of A New Hope made really decent money in January. Um, mm. And um, the merchandising push that was there you know, for a film that was 20 years old is remarkable. And, uh, I was, I was just completely hooked, you know? And as far as I was concerned, I'd been, I'd almost been an original trilogy, um, for those years you know to, to, it was only looking back on it, it was only like three or four years but at that point i was in kid time right so that felt like a lifetime yeah, yeah. and then fine finally p- the prequels were coming along again to what felt like a lifetime of waiting even though it had been a very short space of time uh and yeah i was just enveloped in that world and it wasn't until um so, so for every every criticism people had of it i always had a response or a retort and it wasn't until years later I really came to understand how executionally it, the prequels are generally weaker films than the original three. However, and we can get into this in a moment, I've I, I've always maintained that the criticisms, the very weak, uh, shallow criticisms people level at it, like too much CGI, etc., um, are not really the the problems uh, that, that that they had. You know, it was more around um, just how the script went together and and, and things like that. So. Yeah, for me at the time I was willing to if if Lucas had probably shot on a plate and called it Star Wars I would have bought it, you know. It would, it wouldn't have been a wouldn't have been a problem. And and I was fascinated, you know, the, the little threads that were there that were from that original prologue to the original Star Wars novelization, I could see them all on the screen. So for me I'm like he's just doing what he said he'd do. Like I don't understand what everyone's problem is. Mm. Um so so there was that as well. But t- Taylor, I remember you you at the time as well. You know, you, you had an N64. You were one of the only guys I knew who had an N64. You were into Racer, that that whole oh, thing. Oh yeah. yeah, I was playing
1: Racer before I saw the movie. But um yeah, f- it, for me it had been building since 97. My dad had procured some VHS copies of the films off a friend at work and he'd been sort of leading me and my sisters through the trilogy. And we were just you know riveted by this story and just couldn't get enough of it so we just kept playing and playing and playing and playing until the tape kind of wore out basically and then i think he had to return them to his mate like just beaten and bruised these vhs tapes just <laughs> completely wrecked um but yeah phantom menace was something completely different we went to olbra cinema um my mum and sisters fell asleep but me and my dad were just kind of gripped by the screen basically and I was just like, oh my god, it's here, like my Star Wars is here and it was that feeling of ownership which I think Phantom has always left me with. It's one of the films I still watch the most actually out of the saga. I still love putting it on, kicking back and having a beer and just enjoying the whole festival of it. I just think it's, a you know, 20 years on I still think it's a, a solid film in my collection that I enjoy watching. Maybe Maybe it has become nostalgic. But I don't think we can underrate yeah. the role of Star Wars in childhood, and I think that's a massive thing that you know all fans need to consider. Actually, is like, is it nostalgic for the kids who are growing up today? Will it be? Um, let's see. But um, in terms of criticism, obviously at the time I abs- I had none. I thought it was I thought it was excellent. <laughs> My only criticism was that it finished, and I had to wait three years <laughs> for the next thing. Um, but yeah, as as I've grown up, I I do notice certain weak spots in it. Although, on the whole, I don't think it suffers as bad as say two, um, and certain points in three. I think it's a it's a childish romp. I, I you know it's a, <laughs> I, I sort of dig it. But um,
0: yeah, central character is a child. We shouldn't expect it not to have uh, immature elements. Exactly,
1: you know... He's a little boy. I like how Lucas kind of modulates the humour necessarily towards the more childish for this first kind of outing into the universe. But then, yeah, balanced with the bureaucracy, I mean, like Luke was pulling on this this wider galaxy, I think people for, for 25 years... No, 20 years, wasn't it, after the first one? 22 years? People have been pondering this larger world. And I think... We got it, and we got it so plausibly as well. I I sort of, I kind of buy Phantom Menace in a lot of ways. I buy how that is the Old Republic, and that's what it looked like, and that's how it behaved. I sort of see that's how the Jedi probably were trying to guard an entire civilization with very few numbers. So it kind of, it doesn't seem too absurd to me. I suppose I'm sure Fletch will have a few things to say, but I don't know.
2: It Look, looks fantastic. Well, I, I I worked on the Blu-ray the other day. It, if, if, it it's aged so so well. Um, yeah, it, it looks great. It looks phenomenal. Um, it really does. There's, there's just one or two like Binks, Jaja Binks shots and stuff. For, for me, one of the things that 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 I think a lot of people um, reacted to it negatively with is that there's kind of two things. You need to look at what Lucas was doing at the time but then look at what all the licensing material was doing at the time. So in the early 90s when Timothy Zahn released his Star Wars books and Lucasfilm realised there was a market for all these, uh, you know, people who'd grown up with Star Wars in the (laughs) 70s and 80s um, but but then had nostalgia for it. So... um, I was then lapping up, along with most other people, all of the Expanded Universe books, like I said, starting with Timothy Zahn stuff, the Dark Horse comic stuff, like Dark Empire, and all of that stuff was much grittier and more adult and more realistic. It was ageing with its audience really, really well. Mm. Um, so then there, like the video games, the Dark Forces video games, uh, Jedi Knight video games, these were all things for older teenagers and adults uh, to enjoy. And then you've got that going on. At the same time, you've got what Lucas is doing in his career. And off the back of Indiana Jones, he starts to create the young Indiana Jones TV show, which was light years ahead of its time, basically has a you know film production value on a TV screen on a t- and, and, and on a smaller budget. I think it was a million an episode they were doing it for, which at that point was the most expensive show I've really? made. Uh, wow. But the, God. but the young indie show is, uh, A, he was experimenting with technology, so... Big, replicating crowds, getting big crowd scenes going. Um, so you only have a handful of people on set, but then obviously you can replicate things and scale them up and, and, and have digital extensions to sets, that kind of thing. But also the other thing is that the fact that young Indy is a period drama. Um, Trisha Bigar is the um, uh, was the costume designer for Young indie. Um, obviously was then looking at you know 1910s, 1920s, c- clothing, fashions, uh, putting that together in a really organic way. Um, and Rick McCallum, the producer, making all things possible, whatever Lucas needed or wanted to get that done and get that executed. Uh, and then, like we just said, the little actors that come up. I mean, Christopher Lee's in one, Pernod August, who plays Anakin's mother, is in a couple of episodes. There's two different characters. There's all these people that pepper it. David Tatterstall's the director of photography on Young Indy. He goes on to the prequels too. Um, so the, the Young Indy crew basically segues into the prequels, and I think that Lucas's head at that point, after doing all of that research around uh, young Indy and the origins of World War I and, uh, and, and what made the world go together in the early 20th century, that really coloured what the prequels became. Um, but, but then finally, I guess, executionally, like, like you just said, Fletch, he wanted Anakin to be a kid. He wanted that level of innocence. He wanted to target, a, a, I guess, a kid's market, which worked so well for him in the 70s, you got to sell action figures and stuff. So then suddenly all these big grown men were completely let down and didn't know. I, I think Lucas was in this other direction. Everyone else had been lapping up all of this licensed material for 10 years. And suddenly they felt completely let down. Because tonally there was this thing that was completely different to anything any, any of those guys was expecting.
1: I think I see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, I, but I mean, I still think it's... I still think it's been pulled off in a really plausible way. I, I don't think it would have gone... I don't think the prequels would have been darker and grittier than the original trilogy. You know, plot-wise, we're, we're led to believe that Luke. we meet Luke in, a, in, a, in an era of despair in the galaxy. It's at its lowest point there, you know, that the flags of the Empire are reigning over us. So, by contrast, the lead into this dismal state has to be fairly joyous and optimistic um and i you know so i i, I don't know about I, and i really don't think it's meant to be for the old fans <laughs> I, mm. I i just don't think that's your market at all
2: were you watching young indie saturday night uh, bbc2 and also radio land murders which basically feels like a feature length episode of young indie too that's a lucas produced piece isn't it technically the prequel to american graffiti don't...
0: i'm i um young indie was on saturday nights Saturday nights, BBC One, yeah. See, I, ne- I never remember it as either. Clark, like... New Adventures of Superman. Because when I, the way you were talking just a couple of minutes ago, I was thinking about how cinema, whether people, whether people dig it or not, cinema owes a tremendous debt to George Lucas. Yes. There's Pixar. There's Lucasfilm. There's ILM, THX. But additionally, what you were explaining was this wonderful laboratory that he set up in Northern California. And he's, he's still got it with Skywalker Sound. I, I remember you telling mm-hmm. me about that and how people can come there and they can they can use those facilities. And he's uh, he's formed this during the by the end of the eighties and into the nineties. He's successfully formed a filmmaking laboratory, but uh, and Darabont's there as well. So many so many interesting people and and decent storytellers understanding how to tell stories through film under the tutelage of George Lucas, um, and I think that's. That, that's just fascinating, the, the people that he was breeding. Yeah. Uh, it's like an incubator in Silicon Valley, isn't it? And I mean the show. I don't, I don't know anything about actual Silicon Valley. But When Erling's <laughs> got them in his incubator and he says, yeah, this is all mine, they're having these tremendous ideas. But it does feel like that. And as you were saying, um, on, on Young Indiana Jones, all of the people that would then come back in the prequels. Um, as for a Young Indiana Jones, I, didn't, I think I didn't see its first run, but I went mad for it when I came across it I think it was an Easter holiday. BBC yeah, they, re- they
2: redid it in Easter holidays. Yeah.
0: yeah, you and I have talked about this before. It's inscrutable to me, but uh, like turning one episode into two or even two episodes into one. And yeah. it felt like they showed one every weekday for two full weeks. Mm-hmm. And I recorded many of them. I remember the Battle of Verdun where he's got that large Belgian fellow. What's he called? Like Hervé? Rene. Remy. Sorry, Remy. Because Rene's love love, isn't it? So it wasn't all okay. But yeah, it's Remy. He's got Remy. And then my favourite episode, one that's... I should think about it more often. The episode where he just has to get a phone line put in. Is, yeah. It's perfect... <laughs> perfect Kafka farce. You know the that's one, don't you, Taylor? Um, I don't know. That, don't might, know be one the, that might
2: be one of the ones that's... Um, I think it's directed by one of the Python guys. Uh, it's, I think it might be oh, Terry, Terry Jones. Oh, Terry Jones. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah.
0: Terry Jones was involved, yeah. 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 Um, that's the one that had that resonated most with me. And little did I know, as a fourteen, fifteen-year-old, that it would uh, it would tell the story that... of everyone's <laughs> entire adult lives as well. Just how convoluted and he, everything left... can become. Yeah. he's left
2: on a literal cliffhanger at the end, isn't he? Doesn't he finally get outside? He's hanging from the on top of the street, above the street. He's finally there with the telephone line uh, hanging desperately, and he manages to pick the telephone up, and then they tell him to go somewhere else, or, or they tell him that it's the wrong number, or something. I can't remember what the punchline is. I but... think,
0: he, he I, I, if, if I recall, and I don't think I'm recalling exactly correctly, because it's mist of time, and we were re-watching some of these, but we didn't get to the bottom of it. Um, yeah, he's up a telegraph pole, he makes the connection, and then we see a shot, I think it's a shot of a man desperately holding double doors closed in a consulate and at the other end of the room a bloke's yep. on the phone and he says you need to put in a phone line in barcelona and then uh, like the yeah. rebels <laughs> jump in or the hunter arrive it's because and I, I never remember if it, yeah. the episode's set in vienna or if it's in prague but it's somewhere in central yeah. europe and he has that there's um the french spy that's like running a fruit cart oh, yeah yeah beautiful stuff and i think um this is why it it pains me so... The reputation that Lucas has, and has had, for the last 15 years, pretty much ever since ever since Phantom Menace came out and people didn't like Jar Jar Binks, the reputation he has mm. is so unearned. He's done so much for cinema, so much for storytelling, so much push, well, a- activate young people as cinephiles. I think, yeah, but as, beyond, as that,
1: beyond that laboratory, Fletch, is the whole, you know, he really helped drag Hollywood away from a producer-led system. You know, he really helped close that door... On an old kind of churn and burn system, and really start looking at movies and film as a as an art form and a storytelling medium in a, in a really true way. It, it was less fodder under Spielberg and Lucas and all of those contemporaries, and um, yeah. he never really gets thanked for that. You know? <laughs> um, he just gets no, maligned. He just gets maligned for supposedly racist characters, and it's just kind of.
0: And it... <laughs> If we want to be critical, you know, we should have a word with Coppola because it's Francis that kept telling him to write stuff. Write, write, write. You must write your own material. Yeah. And quite reasonably, it yeah. seems like George Lucas was saying, I find it really tough to write. And it's, it's probably because I'm not <laughs> a very good screenwriter. But Francis is saying, no, get back to that typewriter. Yeah, And you can have wine once you've done a page, you know. I often, um, I often see and... the prequels
1: as the last of that kind of real, fit like independent feeling films you know they had a, mm. they had a, a prequels like them or not and technically challenging as as they were they feel independent they feel singular from a singular mind and I really love yeah. them for that because I think these days it's very hard to find too many movies in that kind of sphere of of influence that really truly feel independent I saw Joker last night and I felt like that had a single voice but this is the first time in a long time I've seen a, a movie that's sort of superheroes and villains and kind of big franchises that still has a, a solid singular mind. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll always return to the prequels for that, especially Phantom Menace.
0: Yeah, I think that Taika Waititi's Thor entry... Yes, yes. ...is, uh, is idiosyncratic. Shane Black did well with Iron Man 3, but really, like to truly do it, I think the, the keystone is Mad Max 4, yeah. where I, I went f- went for that four or five years ago and just simply couldn't believe what uh, a main, what, what a director could get away with in the mainstream it was exactly as he'd done it in 1981 82 and, and uh 79 and 85 mm. and yeah I'd, i i'm appalled but i'm appalled at how as as Lucas talked about and Tony Wilson talks about it a lot as well but uh, history moves in cycles and waves tony wilson always thought everything was on a seven year wave yeah and uh, currently and so people praise lucas for the entire 90s and as is usually the case uh, they they were. Uh, he became an icon in his absence. Then, when he returned, it was like dad coming back, and you realise, oh wait a minute, he's not all that. And the, the backlash was far too pronounced in yeah. one direction. And as we entered this sequel, as we entered this sequel trilogy, and as we've moved through it, it's still been the case that George Lucas is an idiot, and he doesn't. Like, essentially, other people, his own fans, know his work better than he does, even though they're clearly not picking up on. As you've said, Taylor, that the individuality of the of the execution and the themes—they uh, you know—but and yet every single good idea comes from him, and everything that people like in the new ones comes from him. And when it comes to the third one, when it comes to the first one, all they can think to do is Death Star. When it comes to the third one, they may bring back the Emperor. And I think well, there's a disconnect here because you spent the last twenty years saying that this guy's no good and a deadbeat, yeah. but you love Han Solo. <laughs> Princess Leia, Chewbacca, the droids, those are the only things that you can all agree on. And you want Nando yeah. back. We are, and then well, in terms yeah. of anything else that's new,
2: in terms of the individual voice, they, I feel like they tried to do that a bit more with um, Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi.
1: Ah, yes, um, I do think that has a single minded nature. Although it yeah. sometimes just pulls, pulls a twist just for the sake of it, for me sometimes. But yeah.
2: Yeah, it's not really a counter to anything. I'm just saying that. Uh, someone's not been edited. it. I think. I think the prequels. You shared an article recently. I can't remember. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes, uh, Taylor. But one of the things that they were saying with Ryan Johnson's one is it. It kind of sometimes cynically. It does have a single mind, and yes, they entrusted him to, to write a script and deliver a product. Uh, and it. But it's single-mindedly. Um, it has, well, has, a, has a voice, has a single voice. However, it cynically kind of tugs at the Star Wars tropes and tries to turn them on their head. Mm-hmm. Whereas, in contrast, the prequels were swinging for the fence, basically. They were just completely... I rewatched Phantom Menace the other day, and it is so stark how different it feels when you've got you know, the Naboo scenes and the, the Queen and the fact that it feels like some... It feels like a Japanese Kurosawa picture. You I know, feel
1: like I'm on an actual adventure. Like I feel like I'm going somewhere new and um, Penelope and I were talking on the sofa watching because we're, we're doing our big Star Wars rewatch. We're up to... We've, we've just done the, the three prequels and the two, um, so Rogue One and Solo, and we're about to go oh, into the... Really,
2: do you really watch those in the middle? Do you watch yeah, the spin yeah. spin-offs in the middle? It's
1: great. It, it builds the universe, you know, and I, I really love yeah. Solo and Rogue One because they be, uh, for me they belong spiritually to the prequels where we're going to different planets that look different, that have a different feeling, and I think we were looking at each other just going, there's, there's just a bit more magic in these three. There's just a bit more magical stuff happening. I, I don't know how to articulate it better than that, but I don't feel anaesthetised when I watch the prequels. I feel like there's a really compelling story and we're going on a big adventure. I don't necessarily get that yet from the sequels, but maybe they're too fresh right now.
2: Well, Bob Iger's... Um biography drop didn't it um, recently and um, he, he's quite candid about Lucas's first reaction to an early screening of The Force Awakens uh, where I, I'm paraphrasing but apparently he says Lucas was unable to hide his disappointment and he just turned to Iger and said there's nothing new everything's the, yeah. the same yeah so I yeah. wow. don't
0: like that do they <laughs> or rather I mean, they, they do I, I bet Bog, I, Bob Iger thought there's nothing new. Fantastic! One billion dollars! <laughs> if I do the exact retread, I can't go wrong. But, you know, that's what... And, and, look, this is what I mean. I, I was I was going to say that those... That of, of the two... Of, sorry. We're two films into the three films of the sequel trilogy. We are. And uh, they're fine. You know. And they're more fun to watch than the prequel trilogy. And their filmmaking's decent. But... Uh, I think there's a, a complete dereliction of a cinematic duty o- on people when they don't understand what Lucas and what Coppola set out to do in the late 60s and early 70s and what they achieved. And I mean, Coppola's dream went tits up by one from the heart in 1982 and he had to take jobs for hire. But Lucas, Lucas was the one who successfully made himself independent. Mm. Yeah. And Luke's, Luke's made this point to me. Um, Lucas knew he was getting out at the right time. He saw the way that it was going. And he mm. did get out at the right time. And, and again, you always need... It's not about hindsight. It's just about giving everything maybe five years to breathe and then looking back. And the, the decision he made a few years ago has been proved abundantly correct. This was not going to be the world for him. He he made a colossal amount of money selling the thing that was most personal to him, but better that than be the bloke where, you know, it, stick around in an advisory capacity. And he has all these ideas about midichlorins. And um, I, I, I recently heard that People have been mocking him because he brought in that notion of the wills. And I thought, but that was in the original screenplay yeah. from about 74. You know what I mean? Yeah. What What's yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. called? Uh, the, the Guardians of the Wills. Yeah, yeah, it was meant to be like Anakin Skywalker and the Guardians of the Wills with the H spelling. And yeah. I mean, as Harrison Ford said, you know, none of it makes any sense. It's, it's all shit, <laughs> but it's one man's <laughs> ideas. And you, the, the thing is. If, if they were such bad ideas they wouldn't have made the money that they didn't had the impact they did in seventy seven and, and in eighty and in eighty three and with so many other interesting ideas he's had subsequently and it uh it really it aggravates me that given the opportunity of um it, it's the choice between uh, given the opportunity of an original product uh, made by a family business or something that you'll definitely think is adequate made by a conglomerate, and people are saying, yeah, I'll take the Big Mac on that one, and you think, what are you here for? You're so wrong. Mm. Yeah. Wise words. But we are where we are, aren't we? And
1: um, ultimately, Lucas pulled the trigger on that as well. He chose to sell it. Um, He could have financed the sequel trilogy himself, couldn't he?
2: Yeah, he absolutely could have done. But I I think he knew it was really, really, really... It was getting hard. This is what Fletcher was just saying. It's harder to make these pictures now. Um, harder to get they it into the seminars as
0: well.
2: They have to make over a billion to, to, to get the money back. They, they, they now all have to be the most successful picture ever made. And um, yeah. I think I think he was aware of that. He was already semi-retired, don't forget. He was already pretty much retired before he um, sold. And it was only when Iger then approached him and sowed the seed that he then thought oh okay yeah maybe i could get like pixar money for selling to disney which he didn't he got he got marvel money for selling to disney but but which is bigger pixar was seven odd billion and uh marvel was four billion and i think just to sweeten the deal they they put on it was like 4.2 billion i think or
0: something like that that they sold to lucas on just to stroke stroke his ego he got that money he got that money in his bank account yeah, and Sam, yeah, Sam um, Jackson
1: said he sold it for too
0: cheap. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he he gave away. He immediately gave
2: half of it away to charity. Yeah, uh, and a lo- he he also don't forget has a lot in Disney shares. I think he's like one of the biggest Disney shareholders. I, I can't remember what statistic it is, but he's got a lot in Disney shares. God, so ultimately, he's still he he'll,
0: invest,
2: still, he'll still profit off the back of. All the all the Star Wars pictures that are coming yeah. out in that sense, and he'll still profit, like you said, in the like you were just alluding to. I think Fletch in in the Pixar pictures, which is the company like he helped to found, or yeah, at least yeah. he kind of he kind of incubated that a bit more. So like Disney, bit, but he yeah.
1: successfully sold the same thing twice.
0: <sighs> well done, yeah. one,
1: one careful owner Star Wars. <laughs>
0: like, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm
1: always a fan of trying to sort of see George Lucas's life through Star Wars and through what he's writing. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big believer that the original trilogy is his own quest for independence, you know, to try and get yep. out of that system, build the ranch. Hey, Marsha, me and you can be free now. Oh no, you've run off with the stained glass window bloke. That's a shame. Um, and I think, I think that feeds directly into the prequel arc where he's like meant to be this kind of chosen one, this kind of master storyteller you know at the start of the 90s he's kind of god to storytelling and th- through that kind of prophecy he sort of just loses it all uh, now i guess the question is what's he telling us in phantom menace like before he really realized it's going south because he, he had, there was no reason to believe that phantom menace was going to be poorly received you know he was doing everything that he thought was right he was fleshing out his galaxy he was giving us monsters lightsabers spaceships Action, you know, people in distress, blah, blah blah blah. He was doing everything by the book, basically, and having a lot of fun doing it. What's the message of *Phantom Menace* compared to the message of the prequel trilogy, if there is anything about George Lucas's um, life?
2: I, I don't know about his life. I mean, thematically, *Phantom Menace* I think has has much stronger themes than the episode two and episode three as an individual piece. *Phantom Menace* stands alone as its own. So it's labor movie, of love, isn't it? More than. Yeah, more than It feels like a labour of love. You can tell he started writing it in 94. Um, It had the longest writing process. There was actually a script. The other two pictures, he just basically worked with the art department, coming up with ideas and concepts, and then they would jazz riff a load of concept art, which would then feed into, inspire him to write a few pages of dialogue. So episode two and three are made in completely different ways to Mm. the first one. Um, And I think that does show uh in terms of the way it feels and looks and and everything um phantom menace the themes the main themes for me are about symbiosis um if i I pronounce that correctly so it's about the naboo and the gungans and how one race feels inferior to the other and the other race looks down on the other but then they realize as everyone says what happens to one of you affects the other you must understand this Uh, and then it feeds (laughs) into the midi the midi-chlorians um the, the whole idea that that they live within us for mutual advantage. They tell us the will of the Force, which is what people forgot as well. They, th- they, everyone thought the midi were the Force. That wasn't what he was trying to say. What he was trying to say is they, the midi-chlorians are these microscopic life forms that are Force-sensitive. They tell us the will of the Force if we are prepared to listen to them, and we both, we both need each other to survive in that sense. Why does everyone get
1: um, so hot about midi by the way? Like as Because it's reducing like...
2: it to a science. Because it's reducing faith to a science. You know, it used to be trust your gut. Turn your targeting computer off. Turn, the droid's been destroyed. Trust your gut, and ev- you know y- y- you will succeed. And then it felt like he was reducing it more to whoever's got the highest, you know, blood count is is the one is the winner.
1: Um, I, I never minded it. I, I never really understood the the people like bashing that. I was just like, yeah, so what? It's like one line, you know. Believe what you want. <laughs> I mean, we have we have tons of scientific evidence in the world to refute things, but people still believe, you know, you know, cro- a crock of stuff. So. You know, leave it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Dude. I'm
2: completely making this up, but I wonder on some level if he thought that um, we're in a more faithless world now and people <laughs> needed this more more of an explanation. Because it's very clear as well, the first time they're mentioned is on Tatooine when um, Qui-Gon does the blood test and sends it to Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan says, uh, well, is it 10,000? Not even Master Yoda has a chlorian count that Over high. Over 20,000. 20,000, is it? And Qui-Gon says, no Jedi has. Uh, it, like, to me, at that moment, I, I know they have the conversation later on Coruscant when he tells Anakin that these are living within us from mutual advantage, but that first moment on Tatooine, it almost feels to me like it really is a line of uh, dialogue just used to try and confirm very quickly, no, 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 Anakin is definitely special, just in case you were wondering, this is the dialogue that proves it. Yeah. Um, and. That's it. That to me feels like a bit of a letdown because you don't need that. You don't. You don't necessarily need that there. But it's the it's the reason it. I mean, where the idea came from, I don't know. But at that earlier point in the movie, it just feels like it's there to kind of prove a point, really.
1: For me, it's quite a neat and tidy way of saying chosen one. Because otherwise, how do you sort of say ch- he's the chosen one? Kind of, it does give you some sort of backup that he's you know strong with the force at least. I don't know. But then maybe the pod race can be proof of that, he's the only human that can do it, blah, blah, blah,
2: so, yeah. Yeah, that's the, he's the only human that can do the pod race. Maybe there should have been a moment in Watto's shop where he sees Anakin, you know, something falls over and he sees Anakin, you know, but just through his will, he he suspends it, I don't know, now (laughs) here I am rewriting the movie, you know, I'm just as bad as everyone else now. Yeah.
0: I think small things like that, like the midi chlorins, that the, um, put simply, the best work that Lucas ever does is in broad collaboration with a dozen other people. Symbiosis. When Luke and I... Exactly, yeah, and when and when Luke Luke and I looked closely at American Graffiti a couple of years ago, and you realised that uh, Francis is involved, and in, uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz and Haskell Wexler and Walter Merk, uh, Marsha Lucas played a big part, and it's the same with Star Wars, and uh, as we said, it's the same with Young Indiana Jones. He has a more maybe even more than he realises the best way to get his raw ideas to from. His mind, through script to screen, is in these collaborative environments, and that's what produced uh, when he's um, when he's literally producing things like Latino. He's telling interesting stories, and when he does Red Tails, and many many of these films aren't particularly good, but it shows a desire to bring other people in with, with his own uh, with his own currency, quite literally as well. Bring other people in to tell the stories that they want to, and I think it's one of the problems. With, uh, with the prequel trilogy is that he was just out on his own there. As you say, Luke, um, sorry, I can't remember which one of you said it, but he may have thought that in the 90s, and it was the case, that we were living in a more faithless world. And if there was a bloke who did nothing but make, but facilitate cinema for, for 15 years, in the middle of the 90s, when he sat at the ranch writing this new thing, uh, without necessarily any real interaction with what, the, the day-to-day of 1995... It's entirely likely that you think, yeah, I need to, I need to justify that somehow. But he doesn't see enough people that can come to him and say, you don't need to, or you need to refine this, or this is a lovely first draft, George, but maybe we should give this to Lawrence Kasdan to, to dialogue wash it. There wasn't yeah. really much... There wasn't as much yeah. of that on Phantom Menace in particular. And he's always needed that. Ray, you know, Indiana Jones, it, for George Lucas, in a way, he's like um, uh, a studio head from the 30s chomping a cigar yeah. where he says... Cereals are coming back. Guy with a hat yeah. uh, in a desert. And there's a dame and yeah. uh, maybe some Nazis. Yeah. Steve, <laughs> see what you can do with that. I'll just I'll just sit here on the beach, you know. And yeah. that that yeah, that's what he's best at. Mm. And he did. He was then when it came to Phantom Menace, he had to do everything. And I know he wants to do everything. And that again, this is I was I was extolling the virtues of the prequels earlier and how they're a singular vision, but at the same time i don't i wouldn't have wanted him to direct the sequel trilogy no, because no, no. he's not a great director and he's not a good writer and there's many things that he doesn't do well however i would rather ultimately i'd rather have three adequate to poor films by one bloke than three um uh studio tested adequate films by eight different uh producers you know what i mean yeah 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 Completely. i don't need it I don't need it um, what's, what, crowdsourced.
2: What's one of the funny things is that um, in I was going back through my Star Wars magazines from 97 and uh, there's actually a almost a press release in one of them that says that Lucas will direct the first one, the first prequel, and the next two are going to be directed by other people. And whether he became too much a control freak and wanted to do it all himself anyway, or whether... There was another element, perhaps, where I know, for example, Caston, he, he, he asked him to come and write write them, and he didn't want to. By that point, he was directing and stuff, wasn't he? So he, he, he turned it down.
1: That's it, yeah, because um, I've, we've, I've always wanted to get to the bottom of that, how much George stopped people collaborating with him and how many people said no because it's
0: sort of... Oh well, it's making it sad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it I, I it sound people, quite sorrowful. <laughs> I don't think people
2: wanted to touch it by that point. It's yeah. really I, I've been re- reading J.W. Rinsler's Making of Return of the Jedi book, and it's really interesting, because all of the people, these are contemporary accounts on the set, and everyone is saying, this warts and all account, everyone's talking about how George is a great collaborator. He never turns down a good idea. He always listens to everyone, and one of the best things about him as a producer is he brings out the best in everyone that's there. And there seems to be a slight difference between that, and then twenty years later with Phantom Menace when apparently he's calling all the shots and just telling everyone how it all works
0: hmm. i I don't See know what, what
2: changed and 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 I do wonder if some people Star Wars was so such a mighty undertaking whether people just didn't want a part of it you know apparently Carrie Fisher ghost wrote phantom Menace that's the rumor she 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 did do a dialogue take on it um and is it Jonathan Hayes? Hales, Hales. He did episode two. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There was episode something there was, two, it, it wasn't I mean, enough that, though. That struggles
1: it? the most out of all of them, really. That's that's the the, the the dialogue really reaches an all-time low on that film. It's just not. It's not very well considered. It is kind of like it's sort of like you know one notch above Lurum Epsom you know, like placeholder text. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I,
1: I really like the storyline though. I think it's great. I, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see romance between a man and a woman in an action-adventure film ever again because <laughs> everyone's allergic to it these days. It really makes me upset. I mean, we just don't yeah. even get any kind of love. <laughs> we got one kiss in Last Jedi. That's probably it. Um, like, come on, guys. <laughs> I'm a big shipper, yeah. though, so, you know, whatever. Ah, <laughs> uh, poor Georgie boy. But, yeah, I mean, I, so obviously he felt like he wanted to come out of semi-retirement to do this how much pressure was there to do the prequels versus how much did he really think I'll oh, be a nice little earner
2: I think a bit a lot of it was to be an earner I, I'm yeah. not, I, I don't mean that in a cynical way he'd gone through the divorce in the early 80s he wasn't shipping I, I, I can imagine, I don't know anything about this but I can imagine like an accountant sitting down and saying to him the Star Wars merch is selling again George You have to, you have to get more product out there you have to sit down and write these films now yeah. you know I, I can i can imagine a conversation like that with with a business advisor or whatever in much the same way when uh, i forgot i've got all these concepts for 7 8 and 9 a Han solo spin off a Boba spet spin off i've got all these concepts and he, he hired <laughs> my uh, my you know um, uh, michael arn and he hired these people to, uh, suddenly the art department was it kicked into gear to start um, blue sky thinking on episode 7 all this stuff, you know, that, that suddenly, like, uh, you know, you, you need that to prove, you know, when you've got a business, you need to prove you've got assets that are bankable. You know, you've got, you, you, you have something to sell. Um, so I think, in much the same so, way, gone.
0: Do you think, to an extent, and this isn't a criticism of Lucas, but do you think, to an extent, he made that up in order to make this, in order to drive up the price <laughs> of the sale? I love I, that. I is, love that. There's <laughs> not, there's not,
2: there's not a single fibre of my being that doubts that. That is 100%. (laughs) I I truly believe that's 100% what happened. Because that's what anybody would do. Yeah. That's what anybody does. And I'm
0: not even saying that Iger discouraged it, because I can imagine there being a a conversation in which Iger says, well, if you had these many ideas, which is, if if you're just sitting on this one intellectual property, essentially squatting in your own ideas and doing fuck all with it, uh, then we can give you this much money. But wink, 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 if you had wink several other ideas, George, you know, about... Maybe the slug man and his friends, you know, and and the, the how about the teddy bears? What have they been up to? They had the caravan, and then there was the war. What are they doing? And yeah. then you know, eventually Lucas. Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I really okay. like Fletcher's flying the ball account. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about the teddy bears, George? <laughs> yeah.
0: They're I really want chilling,
2: a new Ewoks you know? TV show now. That's, that's what I want, yeah.
0: With all the, with all the tech that they've harvested from the, the, the end of the battle, they should be in an industrial revolution by now. They're probably <laughs> cutting down Endor. And the, the rebels are back there. The eco-rebels are back there. The, uh, and they're saying, Extinction Rebellion, you cannot expel the trees of Endor, it's, the forest moon, come on. It's now
1: called the Extinction Rebellion, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, there you go. Carrie yeah.
1: Fisher in dreadlocks, <laughs> just like trying to power X-Wings yeah. on biofuel.
0: I tell you what, to interject very briefly, that kid of hers is brilliant in Booksmart. Oh my days! What's her name? Oh, Billy Lord. Um,
1: Billy Lord, yeah.
0: Booksmart's a really good film, but she has a, she doesn't even have a plum role. It's not fair to say that she has a nothing role, which through through force of will, and personality, she turns into something wonderful. Anyway, watch the film and look out for her. Oh, I will do That sounds great. She, I, yeah. I, expect... I was surprised. I got to the end and I realised, oh, yeah, that's Carrie's kid. Dang. She plays
1: conics, doesn't she, in the new ones? Yes. Yes. She yes. doesn't get
2: yeah, a lot of yeah. lines.
1: Yeah, I think she's better than they think she is, actually. I mean, I know that they were considering her for Ray, and I think they went in the right direction in the end, but. Um, but I didn't yeah. even know that. Were they really. I think she may have auditioned for Ray. I know, a fr- friend of the show, um, Stephen Douglas really disagrees with the casting of Daisy Ridley. But I mean I think for the most part she's Does she really? What's she, his yeah. rationale for that? He finds her very wooden. Yeah. I know, I know she, Abrams
2: had to take her to one side on day one of filming and uh give her a talking to around that like wooden delivery. Yeah. Um
1: yeah. I don't I don't I don't mind a kind of a, a shaky lead in Star Wars. I think it kind of characterizes the saga in a way. You always have a slightly shaky lead actor and um I think for me, that helps it bring it into that kind of B movie esque kind of feel, that kind of caper, kind of TV feel. But um, uh, yeah. I for... think
0: Ridley's onto a bit of a loser to begin with because Adam Driver is truly the most exciting young male actor working. Yes. And yeah. it, even before he got the Star Wars gig, he'd already worked with the Cohen brothers uh, and Clint Eastwood. And subsequently, he's worked with Martin Scorsese. I think he's... Has he worked with Woody Allen? I feel like he has worked with Woody Allen. Yeah, I feel like He's done everybody already.
1: I like Adam. I I have a lot of problems with the sequels, shoehorning in celebrities here, there and everywhere. I feel like it constantly takes me out of the film. Um, Knowing Gwendolyn Christie's behind the chrome hat really, really annoys me. And I just, you know, I, I, I welcome Lucas's old way of just casting good people, solid actors from who no one really knows too much about, so we can actually invest in this story. Um, Maybe that's why Phantom does work so well. You know, you, you are in that movie. You're not being pulled out of it by every celebrity that goes here, there, or everywhere. You know, Natalie was relatively unknown enough at that time that we could be in the film. I mean, Liam Neeson, maybe could pull you out and you and mcgregor but those guys are such good actors in that film and obviously uh, palpatine's always excellent as well ian mcdermott
0: i like that cast and i like that i've got this feeling but i have a theory that scorsese lucas and spielberg brief each other on actors and clear them with one another Mm. because neeson worked with lucas on episode one then did gangs of new york with scorsese and he'd already done schindler's um, list before that as well yeah. And Schindler's List with Spielberg, yeah. And then yeah. came back for Silence with Scorsese as well. And I feel that there's a little bit of trading between them. Um, there's other instances of it as well, although I'm afraid at uh, 20 past 10 on a Sunday morning, <laughs> they're not coming to mind. I am... Um... But um, I-, I liked as well that, in going back briefly to False Awakens, I liked that Max von Sydow turns up at the very beginning. Oh, Los Antetokos. That felt like a... Conti- yeah, and that, you li- that felt like, you like a Do you like that they kill him off of...
2: within two seconds?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it... it it felt like that casting felt like a continuation of Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing. Yeah, yeah. it did fill in that realm, didn't it? Of uh, uh, bringing out uh, a uh, really... Yeah, exa- yeah exactly. Um, I think Von Sidoff is probably a better actor than all of them, but to have a, a link back... I mean, this bloke's been acting since the 50s. To have yeah. a link back to that, I, I really like that. And I, I picking up on what you've said about the difference between Phantom Menace and the new ones... That, I like that *Phantom Menace* has British character actors in. Celia Imrie's in there, and Ralph Brown. Ralph Brown, Danny the Dealer from *Withnail and I*, and he's in *Wayne's World 2* as well, isn't he? When they to get him to put everything up.
1: Every cast member on *Phantom Menace* from from the British pool or the Irish pool, I think, is on point. I can't really fault their performances. Yeah. From Blessed to Kira Knightley, you know, to, to Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson, I think I think they're all excellent. And I, I think you know the thing about the prequels that really did carry the scenes through was just the titanic theatrical kind of skill set that the British actors brought to that party. And if there is anything to be believed in those crazy scenes, it is, it is the the quality of that acting. Um, I, I, maybe Hayden was an incorrect choice for two and three in the end. Maybe it would have benefited from someone with a bit of more of a theatrical bent, but actually I think that would have, it maybe would have sapped the innocence of the character slightly. Um, and and also his cheesiness, but yeah, I, I don't know. Phantom Menace cast it's, it's not, not they didn't go wrong too badly on the on the casting at all.
0: Uh, I, I like it. It's a shame because I think, as I said, we drivers drivers an astonishing talent. Uh, four films with Baumbach already, and I think if prequels were being cast today, or rather, if the prequels had been cast as this sequel trilogy had been cast, you might get Jake Gyllenhaal. For episodes two and three, as Anakin. Mm. But at the same time, you've got a. I don't. Uh, Luke's touched on this. I'm not sure how cool a prospect Star Wars was off the back of Phantom Menace, and even going into Phantom Menace, I don't know how many hip young gunslingers would have been interested. Uh, committing to two or three films. I mean, McGregor was a was a coup, as it is. I know his um his uncle's Dennis Lawson, but yeah. He now he he was he was honestly hip. He was um, this is a bloke who got his willy out in every film he made. The bloke in Trainspotting. It's, no, it's it's true. I mean, oh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah, kind yeah. of gone legit. But there was Pillow Book and uh, Blue Juice, and yeah, he was uh, he was almost like um, a Jack the Lad from sixties British New Wave. He's always yeah. always had his kit off, yeah. and so bringing getting him and getting Liam Neeson was um, was decisive. But yeah, I.
2: My theory with um, my theory with McGregor and I, it might not quite work out timeline wise, but um I always think he had that falling out with Danny Boyle after train spotting and Boyle went massive Hollywood and started making The Beach with DiCaprio, and McGregor oh, yeah. McGregor was yeah. pissed off, and I always wonder if that was a factor in McGregor saying Fuck it, I'll do Star Wars. Yeah, because he, he
1: was very publicly kind of like laughing at the names of the episode titles along the run, and he's quite. He's quite accepting of the the sort of adoration that's, he's that's, received for his role in those films.
2: That's because he knows the uh, the big Netflix style money's coming in now for yeah. the new Obi Wan TV show, <laughs> uh, and he's going to get to. Do- they've even let they've even sweetened that deal because he um he uh, they're allowing him to direct some episodes, which is every actor's dream, right? You know, a lot of actors' dreams is, is to start start directing. And I always think it's funny when you let an actor direct an episode of a TV show because they by that point the crew is so set up and everything's so there. David Jaffney said this on an episode of The X Files once. But he, by the time he was directing them in like season six, season seven, he said it's actually quite a struggle to get your voice through and get something done that you want to get done um, from a from a directorial perspective. Because at the end of the day, I could turn up here and do fuck all, and it would still look and feel and sound just like The X Files. Like yeah. everyone is here to execute this as, as an episode yeah. of The X Files.
1: Um, so it's like a kitchen yeah. that's been doing the same menu for like ten years. I mean, yeah. you know, you just you're always going to get yeah. it. It's fine. I, lo- I love seeing um, actors' names on d- uh, directional credits on like my old uh, like 90s DVD sort of shows and stuff. I didn't know he was directing some of the new Obi-Wan episodes. That's going to shoot next year, right?
2: I believe so, yeah.
1: It's going to be interesting because it-, it sheds a new light on um, Phantom Menace and the prequels. It sort of it brings that world back to life a little bit, doesn't it? And sort of sutures the so- gap.
2: To wrap up i wanted to talk for a few minutes about like the legacy of the phantom menace and has it aged well and that there's that's kind of twofold isn't it? it it is has the film itself aged well and it's w- what is the lasting legacy of it and the fact that there is clearly a market and a fan base ready to accept uh, an ewan mcgregor direct tv streaming obi-wan kenobi series is surely testament to the fact that it's a well loved
1: Yeah, it's a great film. movie. It's it looks it still looks amazing. I'm still astounded at how brilliant it looks, but then I'm always astounded at how good the original trilogy looks. You know, Lucas has such an attention to detail on VFX and all of this sort of stuff. He really is passionate about that kind of stuff and so it's no surprise it still looks amazing. I think the set pieces are still some of the best in the entire saga. I think the Padre scene, the sound design of that scene alone, is like a university course in sound design you know just those few minutes you can play that to to undergrads at like sound design school and go this is this is the pinnacle this is what you're going for
2: (laughs) every pod racer has its own character i love that they're all different classic cars like souped up
1: the lightsaber battle i mean like the way obi-wan comes out of that like ray shield door like those few five seconds of lightsaber play I, i don't know i mean that's insane i still get Tingles watching that. I'm just like,
0: God, yeah, Star Wars, let's go! <laughs> like, it's just. And if we think about what if we think about what those films are and and what Star Wars is, men are fighting with swords. Yeah, that's not that's not popular. That's not a that wasn't a cultural touchstone in Western cinema until Lucas imported it from Kurosawa. Yep. he hmm. came up. You know, he came up with that. And when people like lightsaber like battles now in the sequel trilogy, it's because it was Lucas's idea. It's not because. It's it's not because uh, Fast and Furious Seven had people fighting with katana swords and now that's back in vogue. It's the ideas of this one guy and and the 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 pod race. Why the hell is that in that movie? Formula One in Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it, that was Lucas's interest. He was it just like a Toad in American Graffiti and um, uh, John Milner or is it James yeah. Milner? No, he plays for Liverpool. John Milner. <laughs> yeah, that, John th- Milner. Those were that, those were Lucas's interest and it's a fantastic sequence in Phantom Menace and it's because it's the the genuine uh, proclivity and interest of one bloke who thought, oh, "I've always wanted to put this on screen, and I haven't yet had the opportunity." This is why we had the speeder bikes. It's a similar in Jedi. It's a similar concept, and it's because one bloke liked a thing and he expressed his interest in it in cinema. And these these are the things that I, when I think about what I like about the prequel, it's those things. It's the singular expression. Of a bloke, yeah. It's not always entirely. In fact, it's often not successful. Sometimes it is successful, uh, but I, I'd, I'd rather have that than, as I've said, uh, homogenised at cinema. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a crowdsourced notion of what should and what shouldn't be.
1: Yeah, it has a it has a personality. Phantom Menace. It really has a personality. It has a feel. Yeah. Yeah. And it has a and it has a great delivery of it. I, you know, I I come away from that film feeling. You know, nourished and like I've been entertained for two hours. I, I feel really good about it. You know, I don't necessarily want to jump straight into two. I just feel cool. Um,
2: I know it's a, I know it's a boring point to make, but at the time, the expectations and I suppose this point we made many, many times. The expectations were just such that this was the first new of the new Star Wars films. They're coming out every year now, so like it, you know, it's it's, it's very average. Um, you know, we're all used to a new Star Wars film coming out. It doesn't have that same. Um, uh, sense of majesty, uh, but it was quite—it's mom- quite telling that uh, a you're on a hiding to nothing in terms of your. Uh, um level of expectations the fanbase have at the time uh, and when I was listening to I was listening to the cast and crew directors uh, commentary on the Blu-ray so this is funny I hadn't realised that the Blu-ray has two commentaries to anyone anyone sitting at home um, I was used to the DVD commentaries with Lucas and I've I've listened to those to death uh, and then I popped in the Blu-ray the other day and I realised that there's a second commentary which is collated um, cuttings as it were sound bite, bites of different cast and crew members or, uh, that were mostly contemporary or at least very soon they Now one of the first people to speak on Phantom Menace is Ben Burt. He talks about how it was really funny that about two weeks before Phantom Menace came out, there were some early test screenings for studio execs. Everyone was panicked and worried because there was this whole thing going on about how the orchestra at the beginning didn't sound exciting enough. Now of course the orchestra for the Phantom Menace was recorded in higher fidelity it was a it was a high, you know better quality recording than it had ever been before because this was recorded in 98 99 however uh, and also frame by frame there was the same amount of frames between the Fox logo and the Lucasfilm logo to the Cruel. everything was identical in that sense he said it was expectation like you you, you were mm. dealing with people who were then thinking oh yeah it's it doesn't why doesn't it sound as exciting as it did well because you it's not 1977 <laughs> you can't go
1: back. So, uh, yeah, you can't go back. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a testament to Lucas, isn't it? He's able to give you something that your mind your mind runs riot with and makes its own kind of best in your head. It's also his greatest problem because he's always up against his imagined self in the mind of all of his fans, and you just it, I don't know. Yeah. Last Je- the latest release, Last Jedi. You know that that's sort a of testament. Never meet your heroes, and and never you know you stick around long enough. You'll see your genius or your hero fall down. Um, I don't know, looking back 20 years on The Phantom Menace, The Phantom Menace for me feels like a victory lap of the original trilogy more than anything else now. It feels like Lucas was celebrating the fact that Star Wars was back and it had already achieved all of this greatness and that he just took his time to create a beautiful kind of victory lap and introduction to a new sort of story. Uh, You know, I I feel like that film has a lot of optimism about 2 and 3. Um, obviously, that wouldn't come. And um, I remember at the time that people spoke fondly of the Phantom Menace, and then the the the, the, the backlash began maybe two weeks after release. Yeah, like like everything, it sort of uh, they had like uh, people on the news. They had people coming out of the cinema, and uh, what did you think? They were like, oh, it was great, great. It was really fun. I had a great time, and then. And it all just kind of went away. And now it's really popular to slam it all, isn't it? Now it's really popular to, you know... Every, every news article you read kind of makes a little quip about how the prequels were bad without really analysing that at all. But I do that think that's all. changing.
2: Yeah, the, you're the, right. the past two or three years, I think the legacy is becoming more cemented. All the things we've discussed in this episode, I think, are, becoming to, are starting to come to the fore. And I think people have realised that it's really hard to make a Star Wars film. Mm. And no, <laughs> one yeah. quite, no one can quite get it right. Uh, and I think people are starting to figure that out, and I think people are now going to. St- people always thought they wanted to have the same thing served up to them. They've now had that, and that you're looking back on it now, and you're thinking. Um, so what? What's different? It's Lucas, and it's all the things Fletch said about you know the, the best ideas are his, and 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 it's a singular voice, and maybe the prequels weren't quite so bad. There's always um, <laughs> there's a funny um, saying Weezer fans have that. Uh, um, the last Weezer out, al- <laughs> the last Weezer album is always the worst Weezer <coughs> album. Weezer album until the next Weezer album. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that there's an element of that as well. You know, um, it's diminishing.
0: I'm returns. not about to make, I'm not about to make an apology for the uh, the cinematic value or the entertainment value of the prequels. But my homeboy Nick Koss, he's got. Uh, I always get the order wrong, but I think he's got two 12s, a ten, and a six-year-old. Anyway, he has four boys. And I've when uh, when he told me that he was going to be... I don't think he said, Fletch, I'm showing him Star Wars for the first time. I think it was more like... A, he's a very casual fellow as well. And also, he's he, he knows if he starts a conversation with me, then I'll be the one that decides when it finishes. And he doesn't really <laughs> want to introduce an idea and then still be there four minutes later while I'm rabbiting away and I've moved it on to somehow... I'm talking about <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop and Martin Brest. But at any rate... He said I uh, uh, he said they're watching Star Wars now and they love Star Wars and I said oh yeah so um what do they reckon to Phantom Menace and he said yeah they love it they love Jar Jar Binks yeah. they love Jar Jar Binks because they're kids because they're 6 year olds <laughs> and 8 year olds and he's Jar Jar Binks he's not he's not childish he's just that he is immature It's funny He's he's uh, he's juvenile and yeah the stuff he does is funny and heartwarming to, and that's their access point that's how kids get I into it I think the best Jar Jar, Jar moment that,
1: is in the in the Bungo when they lose the power and Obi-Wan's like chill Um, Qui-Gon's really chill and Jar Jar's just like he's the only sensible person in the room at that point he's like look we're sinking we're leaking (laughs) there's no power when are you thinking we're in trouble? like literally you know who are these Jedi? are you insane? Like, I just think that's a great character moment for Jar Jar he's like no no he's (laughs) alright he gets it I don't want to
2: get too much into the um I don't want to get too much into rewriting it, but I think a very simple fix for it would have been that at the end in the final battle, he actually had a bit more courage and was um, kicking a bit of ass, and maybe he saves Captain Tarple's. But instead, he he's still doing his whole Harold Lloyd bit, um, yeah, running away yeah. from the big balls and Man. falling over. Yeah. And um, and then when, when Captain Tarples says, don't give up, we'll think of something, he immediately surrenders to the battle droids. And it's played for laughs. And I think, mate, you could have just had him like courage, be courageous at that one moment. Uh, he could have had a character arc, you know.
1: Mm, yeah. True enough. True enough.
0: I was about to say it's like it's like it, Spielberg there took inspiration from *Silent Cinema*. And you've said it. It's like Harold Lloyd, but that's it, in some ways that's not a commercial idea. The commercial idea is *Star Wars*, but then so many things within it are not commercial ideas. Like look, like you've explained to me about young Indiana Jones and the chickens. I, w- yeah. I, I, I don't necessarily need for you to regurgitate it now, I'm sure you've said it uh, seven different times on Local Trouble but <laughs> start the the, Indi- the chickens in, in Young Indiana Jones and the the Star Wars prequel stories tell, it's a civics lesson to an yeah. extent mm. in an extraordinarily commercial property and I appreciate that because those prequels, they're about something, again I, I, I wouldn't watch them for pleasure very often, I like Phantom Menace the other two I'm not so sure about. And it's very rare that I choose to watch those films for pleasure. But they're saying something. They're saying a lot more than I feel the sequel trilogy is. And I know we're not knocking the sequel trilogy. But, for instance, Rogue One. Fantastic. I think it's the second best Star Wars film ever. They're out there. They can be made. Modern Star Wars pictures can be brilliant. Mm. I loved Rogue One. It was, and it wasn't about, um, this is everything I want it to be. It was more like, they've taken a direction. They have a point of view. One of my favourite lines in all of the new stuff is when uh, I can't remember the characters' names, but somebody says to the girl, um, "Don't you don't you know what's going on out there?" And and her response is, "It's not a problem if you never look up." You know the line. Yeah, 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 And I thought that's all. That's there. You go in synecdoche. That's everything that the Star Wars rebellion can be about. You've a, a subjugated people, but they can just about get by. If they don't pay attention to what's around them, and it's the same in our lives, and that's you show that to a ten-year-old, twelve-year-old, fifteen-year-old, and they'll connect with that and realize, hell, that's what's happening to me as well. It feels like, it feels like there's a lot of corruption, but no one wants to do anything about it. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, John Lennon, Strawberry Fields, uh,
2: living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that now I know that's. I know that's Rogue One, but I think Lucas has always had those notions. If you, with pictures like Latino, and Red Tails, Lucas is an old-fashioned, bleeding-heart liberal that wants to tell multicultural stories, and wants to explain to people in as Taylor's always talked about in, in a way that they can easily digest. Uh, talking about power elites and structures, uh, corrupt institutions, how we can overcome those, how we can fight against those, and it all comes down to. Luke, as you educated me on, his dad saying, "Run the store for me." I don't want to run the store. I want to race, man. I want to get out and I want to race. That's what I want to do. And it's it's that, isn't it? It's uh, I love you, my my. I love my father, but I can't follow in the footsteps of my father. And I need for him to somehow understand and and honor the choices that I make myself. And that's what you get in the original trilogy. And there's some of that in the prequels.
1: Phantom seems to, out of all three of those those prequels phantom seems to be the most together seems to be the most solid but it also has the luxury of not having to do too much and one could argue that phantom you know looking upon it 20 years further on maybe it doesn't advance the story quite enough and that it leaves two and three having quite a lot to do um yeah I, I don't know if you guys that. feel the same about that or not. But.
2: Well, it, 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 I do feel the same way as you do on that. It feels like a lot... The machete order became a thing, didn't it? The machete mm. order was you watch um, four... Uh, you, so what was it? You watch four, four or five and five. And you then all you all all flash thrilled. back to two and three. You completely forget Phantom Menace. And then you finish up in um, episode six. The idea being that you know he finally says, I'm your father. And then you flash back to Anakin as a young man with Obi-Wan. Um, and and then I think you can go one more I think you can ditch even two if you want to do that and you can just have you can just have episode three um but yeah you're right I, I think that it does leave two and three to cover ground but the, the funny thing is that's why I think episode one is the most standalone it's the one that feels most comfortable in its own skin it, it's the one that feels like it's not trying to connect dots it's the one that feels yeah. like it's got its own point of view about the world that we live in um two and three feel a little bit more like Christ, I've got to map this out and get it done. In you know, I'm laying a single piece of train track. Episode 2 and 3 both feel like laying a bit of train track as you're going, like in the wrong trousers, do
0: you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I think the standout line from Phantom Menace as well You know, is, is quite gone. Your focus determines your reality. I think that a, a lot of the new stuff could learn from that piece of wisdom.
2: Yeah, completely. I mean, that line blew my mind um, as a kid, and it's one that I still live by to this day. Uh, your focus determines your reality um, and in much the same way you get all these tidbits from Yoda and Empire that people then spent 20 years building their lives around um, these kind of you know wry little pieces of um, kind of pigeon wisdom um, yeah. it's, it's the same you know Phantom Menace still had a bit of that your focus determines your reality I whenever I'm feeling down or I'm, I feel like depression's gonna sink in or whatever I always think your focus determines your reality and it really helps me. That's Lucas. That's a man. W- has
1: That's a kind of incredible, on... isn't it? I mean, like a kids' movie actually has good, solid advice for life in the adult age. And I, you know, I, I haven't, I don't have any pearls from, say, the the sequel trilogy. I mean, well, apart from Yoda's words in last from that Jedi, is, you know, uh, the failure, folly, the... you know.
2: Yeah, the, the the only thing I've got from the sequel trilogy thus far is um, uh, "Let the past die, kill it if you have to," which is something yeah, yeah. I I I, <laughs> I c- cynically uh, say to Lex when we're out and about as well if something's happened like Oh no, I forgot I forgot to uh, I forgot to get the so and so from the shops." I say, "Let the past die, kill it if you." Have to. <laughs> I love I love
1: how hyperbolic that is. Uh, I forgot the milk. Let yeah, the past die.
0: All this dialogue, it it feels. This dialogue these shibboleths they feel hyperbolic and uh they're easy to criticize but you've just made me realize luke stick that on instagram million likes yeah that's what people do all day now isn't it but honestly that's what that that kind of your focus determines your reality oh yeah that really yeah, that, that that's yeah, that kind of uh what would you call it the inspirational instagramming yeah, um, yeah. T- tedious you could easily sub there should be one for lucas you could easily sub in all those aphorisms yeah and and they would be liked by uh, what uh, Love Island people. <laughs> Across the country, <laughs> I might
2: start an Instagram. They'd be George, them. I know. I might start an Instagram, George Lucas Wisdom. I think that sounds like a fun, yeah. a fun thing. <laughs> I'm
1: sure. I'm sure George is a regular listener to our show. Yeah. There's
2: another. There's a different episode for a different day. I want to do on the legacy of Marsha Lucas because she did save the original Star Wars in the edit, she did, and yes. she brought the heart in to it. And she said, if people aren't cheering when Han Solo comes to save the day, then the film doesn't work. And I do think her humanity and her voice is lacking in the prequels. And it's abundantly, you know, running through the uh, the, the, the originals, or certainly the first two, um, and that's a separate episode for how she has been sort of written out of Star Wars history. Um, she got an Oscar for that first movie. She
0: got an Oscar for the editing. Yeah,
1: it was brilliant. The editing is excellent. It, it's thrilling. It's riveting. You've uh, just
0: explained symbiosis there, Luke. Incidentally, yeah, <laughs> that's a, another aspect of it, isn't it? He did his best work when he was with people that he was closest to, and when Marsha went something else went as well and he didn't... He hasn't yet rekindled, nor may ever rekindle that kind of collaborative artistic relationship. Maybe
1: he... Maybe she was somewhat of a muse for him. Maybe she was his audience, his kind of inner audience, you know, It was making them...
0: I'll go further than muse. I'll say, you know, she's making it good, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. There's there's yeah. muse and then there's taking his hands and saying, no, put the edit there, George, right yeah. there. Thank you. Because yeah. she worked on Taxi Driver and Alice doesn't True live enough, anymore. Yeah. She was a... It is. You're right, Luke. And that, yeah, exactly. There, there does need to be more said. There does need to be an episode dedicated to her and her uh, her part in everything that we love needs to be highlighted greater. Because I don't. It is worrying to think that a female voice was written out of the narrative. I don't like to hear that, especially one that was just so decisive and so as in important as cinema. you could say. That that was because yeah, he it, was embittered, yeah.
1: right? I don't think he was. He's a sexist. I think it's probably because he was just embittered oh, by no the breakup.
0: Oh yeah, no. It's Uh, just a shame it's a lady. If only he'd been gay, it could be about a man, and we wouldn't have to take kind of take sides on the the matter. But yeah, she was. Thelma remember as well that Thelma Shoemaker wasn't working with Scorsese in the '70s. She wasn't working with him until *Raging Bull* because, for sexist reasons, she wasn't allowed into the Editors Guild, as I understand it. And so, in that period of uh, seven, yeah, I think so. In that period of seventy-two to eighty-ish. It was yeah. Marsha Lucas was integral. She was the go-to for all of them. And I, Luke, you might be our access point into this, but I don't know enough about it. And I'd love to find, to read and and hear interviews with Marsha. And I wouldn't be surprised to hear if Scorsese was saying like she was the woman. She was the woman. We are, we all are went to her. We needed her validation. She was the girl. <laughs> you know.
2: You're right. You're right. Um, and I know that it, with making Return of the Jedi. Um, she, um, he, he wasn't going to show her the first cut, you know. He, he, until um, it, he valued her opinion so much. He, um, someone said, "Are you going to show this rough cut to Marsha?" And he said, "No. Always save the person's opinion you trust most until the end, um, or, mm. or, or, or always have one last person at the end." And that's what that's what he did in that sense. And um, you can actually tell during the making of *Return of the Jedi* how, when the relationship has broken down, um, that his the bottom of his entire world falls out, and it's just enough for him to get through the day and um and, and try and get to the end of that um but that yeah that's a that's another episode for another day um and i i certainly want to talk about it but her, in the context of the phantom menace you know her her warmth her, her presence you know is obviously not there so i think it's significant in that sense
1: i think the score stands up i think you know 20
2: years I haven't on haven't even spoken about the score actually i was trying to wrap up with the score because one of my I'm... favorite star wars scores
1: I'm just trying to think of like the the end the ending of it and then you know that little tidbit that the emperor's theme is played in a major key as kind of yep. like a like a little There's nod a to the yeah, like a nod to the audience that, you know, um the Emperor's kind of scored his first point or the Phantom Menace has really scored his first point. But exactly. yeah, definitely one of the best scores out there. Um There's some really Anakin's cool digest- theme we have, oh yeah, the yeah, music is yeah. really good. The in-universe music, uh, which is the fancy word, isn't it? Diegetic. Yeah,
2: there's a there's a there's a really weird track, the uh, Moss Espér Street Singer, and you can hear it very very briefly during the pod race, uh, in the extreme background of the mix. Um, but it's a whole like one and a half minute track, um, which is obviously this busker who. Uh, you know, completely fictional uh, busker who's, um, who, who Williams wrote this tune for. And it's the most haunting, you know, thing I've ever heard on a Star Wars soundtrack uh, of all time. And you can just about hear, make it out in the movie. Um, but yeah, Anakin's theme, I think, is uh, is up there with Across the Stars. is one of the greatest symphonic pieces of the 20th century. Mm. I, I think it's a, a gorgeous piece.
1: And you've got um, Jewel it's... of the Fates, obviously, which is just, you know, titanic piece. <laughs> that it just keeps always comes back I mean like, a lot of people play this uh, when they're at work to try and speed up I know Charlie a regular listener does he sort of smashes on Jewel of the Fates if he wants to do something really quickly I do I, if I
2: think <laughs> oh, fuck it I need to just sort everything out today I put on Jewel of the Fates uh, on occasion I have certainly been known to do that and the, 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 oh my word there was a music video for it they did yes, a music was. video this for was Jewel back of in the Fates,
1: day, wasn't it? yeah
0: and it was on MTV like that's the different world we were living is in is that the one with, with footage of Williams conducting yes and I think it yes I know it yeah it's
2: even got a little bit more Darth Maul dialogue in it Um, there's a moment where in the music video he says fear fear attracts the fearful the strong the weak the innocent fear is my
1: ally I remember the on the marketing I remember being marketed Phantom Menace like it was this kind of computer generated festival you know like uh, finally we had the technology to, to create on the machine and and it's such a shame that that's become the backlash of it because I think the actual practical effects in Phantom Menace is still quite large. Definitely yep. more significant than these days. Um, There's, um, it goes I've to show been, what I... marketing can do, can't it? It really can destroy oh, yeah. a profile if it's, if it's kind of mismanaged or not considered mm. properly.
2: The PR line was very much, uh, we have made the most technologically forward, progressive film of all time. The, the computer technology is now as such that we can do whatever we need to do. Uh, but you're right. I, I can't remember what, what ILM employee said it, but somebody said Phantom Menace has more model work than any other film in history. Um, and there's so many models. And, you know, the, the waterfalls in Theed are just salt uh, being photographed, dropping 12 feet and then slowed down. And, huh. yeah, yeah. Th- there's so many. Th- it's every trick of the movie trade. But you're right, Taylor. I think that the PR line was this, let's push the digital element. And as a result, there was then a direct backlash to that, which is a real, real shame.
1: Yeah, it is, because I mean, that first explosion of the ship, you know, what I love about that is that we're entering the saga and there's something about that explosion, which is just so Star Wars. Well, I hate I, yeah. hate, I sort of hate using that phrase on the show because, you know, it gets misused all the time or it doesn't feel Star Wars, but you know just the coloration the sparks it just felt so 70s to me it's
2: a it's a practical and it's a choice sure. yeah and, and it's a yeah. choice
1: that they make and they, they make it that way to kind of just soothe us into it and then they kind of give us the big chrome ships and stuff like that i love the naboo ship designs i think you mm. know if cgi did anything it's those beautiful ships because you Fletch, just can't um, you can't really animate like those as, Yeah, so good
0: yeah I, I, i'm you know i'm a little bit worried that um the next time I return to the trilogy, but but particularly *Phantom Menace* and uh, *Attack of the Clones*, I'm a little bit worried that I'll realise that I've spent 15 years not appreciating the production detail. Oh mate, it's all 20 there. years not appreciating, you know, so those cost. As Lucas said, those costumes, but that the the set design and the, the, essentially the entire world that's created with the production design and the influences it's drawing on. Um, I think I'm going to kick myself. Oh, you will do. Oh, you will do, arms, yeah. You, you know? don't
1: have to watch the movies to appreciate them from that kind of artistic standpoint. If you buy the making of books and all the art books, they're incredible. Yeah. Like Coruscant City, uh, as a design, just all of the architectural references alone in that kind of design is just mind-blowing. Like, they really were creating much more than just a movie. They were, they were building a universe, and I, you know, just all the references. I love the costumes. We went to an exhibition, didn't we, Luke, with some of the, mm. the costumes there, and it was just... It was enthralling. I mean, this was all, this was all hand-tailored work. You know, mm. It's beautiful. And, and I, I look now at the rags which we have in the sequels, and I, I sort of get it. We are in a different era, and I'm just like... And, and then when someone disses the prequels, I'm like, but God, they're just so rich. They're so yeah, they're rich gorgeous. with just beauty, and
0: um, God, uh, a, a fan, a fan of Menace yeah,
1: on but... Mute is worth it,
0: you know? Yeah. One of the... Um... I haven't even mentioned, but I should say... uh, I should say for the listeners that I'm not the Star Wars superfan that uh, Luke and Taylor are, is... (laughs) I I don't want people to think that I presume that everything original is good and everything over the last five years has been whack. As I said, I think Rogue One is a tremendous achievement, especially working within the confines, within the relative confines of that studio system. But... um, one of the dopest parts of *False Awakens* for me was seeing the, the rebel uh, pilots in their old rebel gear, looking like the seventies. I'm not quite sure how they did it, but oh. I watched it with Byrne yeah. and we both said they've got how they get the hair right. They've <laughs> even got the, the the slightly outdated 1979 hair, you know. So it, it wasn't when *Star Wars* was shot and when *Empire* was shot, it was contemporary, but it wasn't necessarily stylish. Yeah. But they got they got it right, and I, I really liked that, and that. It's think little things like that that it's the 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 eye for production detail which makes the Star Wars universe for me. And and those um the pilot suits are wonderful. And also I really I haven't had the opportunity to say this on local trouble, my first time on it, but uh that yellow petrol pump robot in Force Awakens, he's my favourite <laughs> in the whole of the the new trilogy. You know the thing? Oh, he yeah. comes out at the end going, Whoop 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 <laughs> and it's a bloke in a suit. I like that. And I remember um Luke, I think it was when you and I were living together, and we kept joking. We, the the running joke we had was, people love Muppets. Star Wars is Muppets, but the thing is, I I do. It turns out I really do love Muppets. (laughs) I do love to see puppets do funny things. I liked. um, What was that? I I loved that little guy in uh, that little casino guy. Oh, that's great
1: in Last Jedi. Uh, Yeah. What's he? I don't know his name.
0: He he might have been CG though. He was CG. Um, I think he was Mark Hamill motion capture. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was good. I like that little alien, and I really do like Muppets, and I like people in people blatantly people in big suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah apparently, that is Star Wars for me. So you yeah. know, all that satire from point, five years ago. The point Luke, I was trying to make. It was targeted at point, me. The point I was trying to
2: make is that things are secular, and things do move in seven-year cycles. Because at the time of Return yeah. of the Jedi, so going back to Clerks in the early nineties, you know they talk about which did you like better, Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back? Empire had the better ending. And at that point, Empire wasn't necessarily seen as the better of the sequels. And he, and he, and he, to justify it, he says all Jedi had was a bunch of muppets. At the time, <laughs> people thought that they, Jabba's palace was this big cash in to create a load of action figures why are there so many bloody Muppets you know instead of human characters at the expense of you know, human characters, human drama um, actors were bemoaning it on set that you're the least per- important thing on the whole set because everyone has to you know the 18 yeah. people that are required to make, operate Jabba need to be in place and everything needs to be there. Um, so when Jedi came out everyone was saying there's too much emphasis on Muppets, this is getting silly because if you look back at Empire there's hardly any aliens in it at all. So with Je- yeah, with Jedi, yeah. um, uh, people are saying it's getting silly. My my point is that people have forgotten that now, and now everyone's like, the problem is the CG.
0: Uh, so make everyone Muppets again, and 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 then but then yeah, someone yeah. just has another problem with it. So, <laughs> and I, when I watch uh, when I watch because uh, Jedi was my access point for the entire Star Wars universe, I watched that first, then Empire. And I didn't see Star Wars, I didn't see a New Hope until I was 11 or 12 years old. I, I think it had just been off television for a few years. Mm. And, I, um, and what I genuinely enjoy about that puppet aspect is it's, it's, uh, it's both funny and fun. I'm not trying to undermine it, but I don't want people to think it's because I imagine the tremendous backstory of Danik Jericho or <laughs> Effentmon or the Yakface guy or Ree So I've got all those figures, not Danik Jericho, admittedly. <laughs> but I just see them moving around and I think they look fun. And I yeah. think about if I go outside of the movie, I think about how you know a, a, a mask was set and moulded, and people have to put it on and they're having a shit time. But then they're on screen and they look like a funny alien <laughs> man. <laughs> it's just like the gas pump bloke. It's it's cool. <laughs> it's just funny to see at the edges. That's something that Lucas has done well, and that's something that they they continue to do pretty well with the with the um, current trilogy. Is yeah. It's, it's the canvas is painted to the edges and there's stuff happening and I when it's when it's muppets and puppets all the all the better I do I, yeah, I, yeah. I
1: miss I miss Yoda being a puppet in phantom Menace I have to say that is one of the things I miss about that movie is that I wish they had kept Yoda as a puppet in at least episode one because it just that puppet and Frank Oz and the team who create that thing it's just
0: have they retconned that? And yeah, have they gone they, back and CG. They digitised it? it. Oh and, my days! I know it's
1: a shame. It's what? a shame because the first cut. It, Why bother? Exactly. Um, it was better with the puppet, <sighs> but he was looking for. He was looking to uh, you know see how far he could push the tech. And uh, you know, we we always have to cast our mind back 20 years and see what the current state of CG was at that time. Yeah. We didn't know the limit. You know, Uncanny Valley. It wasn't really being said very often. They didn't know that there was a revulsion point to this technology. If they pushed and pushed and pushed, theoretically, they would have crossed to the other side where you couldn't tell. Uh, we now know that that's probably not yeah. possible. Um, not currently, anyway. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Never mind. There isn't a cut which exists where he is a puppet, of course. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've got it on the VHS. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think the DVD is Puppet Yoda as well.
1: DVD is Puppet Yoda, yeah. It's yeah, Blu- Ray, Ray, Blu-ray, is, is Blu-ray is the place. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think one thing to, to keep in mind with Lucas... Um, This is a fairly broad assessment, but first one through the bush always gets a little bloody. And what he did with Jar Jar Binks, no one was fucking complaining two, three years later when Gollum came out. But without Jar Jar Binks, without The Phantom Menace, Jackson wouldn't have had... He wouldn't have had the capacity. And I mean both in terms of the technology, but also a studio allowing him to completely CG a character. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The snatches of it that you get in Fellowship are... uh, in Coat, and even then, even just a few months, relatively speaking, a few months before the release of, if, if you see what I mean, when Fellowship came out, it was only, what, a year and a half before Two Towers? And even in that time, they made a substantial leap between the golem that we see in the first Lord of the Rings and uh, the rendering in the second. And now I sound like I like Lord of the Rings, but I'm not into that either. I don't know what I'm into. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get that without Jar Jar Binks. Another thing as well that's relevant to our time is that the um, the flak armoured best cult and the non career he's had subsequently is entirely attributable to to the uh, the negative reception to Jar Jar Binks and it was a precursor to the Twitter maelstrom we've had for the last eight or nine. Well, I was years. going to bring that up with you guys. I didn't bloke. know whether
1: it was sort of something worth saying. Did did the Phantom Menace is its legacy? Did it kick off the fan revolt type situation that we currently just? we're all so comfortable with now is it is it to blame yeah in I'm a not word sure it's i'd to say, blame, yeah but yeah. you know I, I think you know just yeah phantom kind of marks that moment where films changed from being this output to this kind of i don't know discussion product <laughs> yeah
0: yeah Pro- yeah but, like yeah, a product I, yeah, with a warranty, as as
1: warranty with like a product with a guarantee like it it feels now that you're being sold a movie that has like a a one year i like it guarantee mm. but i'm just like mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: It. It's like imagine going to the Tate Modern and just loving everything because it had that kind of guarantee, you know? Art isn't like that. Some things just revolt you. Yeah. We all need to have a much more sensible discussion about film and what it's for. It's there to elicit an emotional response of a kind, not necessarily tickle all of my fan itches. You know, it's uh, yeah. It's frustrating. It's
0: not a, art. Art and even popular cinema cannot be a box-checking exercise. What's uh, anathema to me. It means they don't like it. What's anathema to me is uh, th- the current vogue for uh, art being released or even on the point of release. And um, fans, first, fans demanding that it be something that they want it to be, but also that it then gets changed. And I don't just necessarily mean that Farrago with the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer, but a situation in which um, I-, I I heard, I read an article very recently about um, problems within f- uh, fan responses to young adult novels. And before these books are even released, the au- the authors are coming out and saying, I understand that I may have touched on some sensibilities. I'm learning. I'm understanding. Your input's important. No, no, no. But th- This isn't... They're not your patrons. No. Their input... Is, they are the consumers. You are the creator. You don't ask them yeah. how to create. You do it. If they don't like it, they don't yeah, buy it. Yeah, it's not it. a pub. You don't you I don't know. change it's the taps. R- yeah, this re- this relationship is perverse, and I think uh, uh, I think Phantom Menace, to the best of my understanding, was the first time that people bought tickets for a movie just to see Phantom Menace as the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Luke, you probably remember what was it? Big Daddy. It was Water Boy in Waterboy? the States. Yeah. Ah, oh, close Water Boy. Yeah. So that was the first time that happened. As, as far as i remember, it was the first time. Possibly since Jedi, but the, the really the first time ever that people went to midnight screenings dressed as the characters, dressed as Darth Maul to see the film that you haven't. He's barely in, and you haven't seen the film, but people are still dressing as Darth Maul, and they're probably going with the feathers from the Ian McCaig renderings yeah. rather than what's actually in the movie. Um, that all, I think that all started with Phantom Menace. It was internet backlash in its infancy as well. Mm. Um, in a, I, I was, it probably Phantom Menace. Is responsible for the 21st century. It gave us the 21st century. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a certain
1: sense, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, all of that as well, especially the treatment that Jake Lloyd received yeah, from the fans. I mean, he had, he had 40-year-old men with, you know, full vitriol just telling them, this nine-year-old boy, that he had ruined their life. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and this wasn't on the internet. This was in person at conventions. Uh, the, phrase,
2: the phrase was coined as well, George Lucas raped my childhood, right?
1: That yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, and um, it, you know, the Phantom Menace marks that. You know, I don't know that the loss of innocence is is its discovery, isn't it? And I think with Star Wars and the Phantom Menace, in closing, really, although we got this very innocent and naive, childish film that we we really enjoyed, it did represent Star Wars's loss of innocence, and the birth of the hate. It's never really fully recovered from that from that at all. And I don't think it's the film's fault. I think it's the fan base. And um, and our expectant kind of attitudes these days, that we just don't take things for what they are, we, we sort of demand that they obey our command, rather. That's not much of a legacy, though, is it? It's a bit of a dismal legacy to leave it with, I don't know. I think uh, you can always take it two ways with Phantom. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens again this December. I hope we don't have a, a load more shouty-shouty, punchy-punchy, fighty-fighty, you know.
0: That's the, the bizarre, perverse thing about fandom is that for some people, uh, fandom is not about support. I've got a season ticket at Fulham. I'm a generally chill bloke there these days. There are people that shout and are upset for 80 minutes of a match that we win 2 0. Yeah. And you think they, they, they're still supporters, they're still giving money to the club. That's their club. But their participation, their uh, interaction with it, is quite removed from what mine is. It's, there's clearly people, it's the same with Star Wars, there's clearly people who, they spend a week on message boards, miserable about Fulham, explaining how poorly we're doing, which is not true, you know, and is rarely true. And it's the same with Star Wars. It, 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 the The fan interaction isn't, I don't want mindless support, un, mindless uncritical support, but it's, yeah, it's exactly as you've said. I love Star Wars. Well... I love 20% of the entire thing. The, the rest I can't stand. Oh hold on. Wow. If that uh, apply that to a dinner, you'd send it back and vomit. Yeah. I, mean. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean
1: maybe maybe the Phantom Men is really what it really represents now that we're looking back on it now is it represents that lovely idea that Star Wars that can be continued to be made. You know, and the, and it really opened up. It you know because really the original trilogy was fairly locked down. It was these these few movies in the 70s and 80s that really was universally loved, and the Phantom Menace was that first step of it mm. taking of it taking on its real franchise. And yeah. Re- and for a, for a brief moment, mm. it represented the future of Star Wars, which was they're going to be making these things forever. There's going to be loads more characters and planets and, and yeah, adventures yeah. And, and creatures and, and stories and, and Jedi and, and princesses and blah blah blah. And I guess that's, that's its legacy now, is that it really kicked off what, what we're currently living under, which is like Star Wars everything, everywhere. <laughs> and now for better or worse, I am glad that it continues to exist. I am glad that it continues to find favour with children of gee, six years old, eight years old. I love it when, you know, girls are running around dressed like Ray. I think that's super cool that they, they love this character and they want to be just like her and, and save the world and stuff. And you can't, really, you can't really shit on that. Like, that's a good thing to have, for better or worse, whatever we think about the storytelling. You know, that's, that's a positive place in the world. As long as Star Wars continues to be a positive force for kids in the world, I think I can kind of relax a little. And I think The Phantom Menace was, because I was a kid and I thought it was awesome. And it made me want to, I think it made me want to go into the arts. I think it really inspired me to go, well, how do they make these things? I want to go into that. I want to do something artistic with my life. Clearly, this is a job. Mm. yeah for that for that sense I think Star Wars has to continue to inspire people into you know careers similar to that yeah. puppeteers probably <laughs> inspire Fletcher inspire young Fletchers to be puppeteers
0: <laughs> yeah career pivot that's what I need right now yeah, yeah.
1: I feel like Fletch I feel yeah. like Fletch going into puppetry is going to become a bit all kind of like being John Malkovich <laughs> you know
0: it's, <laughs> it's, it's just going to lose his
1: mind and do these like 80 foot puppets
0: it's my head Schwartz my head <laughs> That's really good. Guys, oh thank you
2: so much for uh, indulging me uh, and, and get, taking a trip back in time to 1999 uh, and remembering the Phantom Menace uh, and where it leaves us uh, with a chilling foresight of things to come, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but who was destroyed, the master or the apprentice?
2: <laughs> exactly. Um, thanks very much, guys. Um, so, we've been local trouble. This is the One Sensational Shot Network. Um, you can find us at, at One Sensational, but you could uh, that's on twitter of course uh, and the instagram but also you can uh, find the local trouble show at local trouble pod on twitter uh, and you can uh, email us uh, if you go to the uh, website onesensational shot.com uh, also which will support the show we do sell lots of old movie posters movie wares you can find a link on sensational shot.com Uh, but it's one sensational shop on eBay. That's very difficult to get across on air. We weren't thinking that one through. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless It's witty though. Do get in touch Um, and of of course without any shadow of a doubt we want to hear what you guys think about The Phantom Menace so do let us know on the Twitters, on the social medias, on the Facebooks, uh, on the website. It would be good to hear from you. Thanks very much everyone. Take it easy. It's a little
1: disjointed. Seems like a lot of short scenes. It's bold in terms of jerking people around but I may have gone too far in a few places in a space of about 90 seconds you know you go from lamenting the death of you know a hero to escape to slightly comedic with jar jar you know to mm-hmm. Anakin returning with his little kind of tag it's a lot and you know it's a, and really and it's a very short time uh, boggles the mind. I mean, I've thought about this quite a bit, and the tricky part is that you almost can't take any of those pieces out of there now.
0: Because no, each one kind of yeah, takes, takes you to the next place, the next and you can't you can't jump. No, because I don't know where you are. You think about the very first Star Wars sitting in there. Yeah. No, I know. And it, it starts opening. I, you don't know what the hell. I, I, I do
1: a particular kind of movie, of which this is consistent, but it is a very hard movie to follow, and at the same time, I've done it a little more extremely than I've ever done in the past. It's stylistically designed to be that way and you can't undo that, but we can diminish the effects of it. We can slow it down a little bit so that if it's intense for us, yeah, we don't know what I'm You know, a regular person's going to go nuts. We'll start cracking again tomorrow.